brought to you by CGTN Europe. Hello and welcome to this week's Razor podcast. I'm Shinny Somara. And I'm Emma Keeling. Today on Razor, I look at a company that's giving us new tools for tracing COVID-19. The premise behind Nextrain is that we can take the genetic material out of the virus and we can use this to tell us more than we might otherwise be able to get from, for example, interviews and just testing numbers alone. And I look at the aerodynamics of how COVID-19 can spread. The droplets actually are very light, so they will not keep moving along with you. You will actually leave them behind you in your trail. Now, Shinny, did that interview help you develop a new sort of social distancing technique that involves maybe a little bit of ducking, weaving and diving? (laughs) That is usually how I normally walk around. But yeah, it definitely had an impact. Now, we know that social distancing is important during the COVID-19 pandemic. It's one of the main weapons we've been using to fight the virus. Yes, it's led to far too many virtual quizzes, possibly even more takeaway deliveries. Uh, But I think you're probably talking about keeping the two metres apart from people when out and about, Shani. That's so true. But what a lot of people don't know is that the two metre distance that we're used to here in the UK is a number that has a long history. I spoke to Professor Bert Blocken about his study, which has mapped the flow of air particles and might be crucial to understanding how the virus is transmitted. Our intention was to see um, what is different when um, you are moving in terms of movement of droplets around you. So this social distance, or actually it's a physical distance that has been determined that is in some countries 1.5 meter, in some it's 2 meter, in some it's 6 feet. That has been determined actually about 20 years ago for two people standing still and talking to each other somewhere where there's no wind. And that makes sense because most of the droplets that you exhale or that you can cover sneeze, they don't travel further than 1.5 meter, and if they do, they will probably land on the ground and, and not, not on the face of the other person. But when you're moving, things can become very different. When you are moving forward and you're exhaling droplets, the droplets actually have, are very light, so they will not keep moving along with you. You will actually leave them behind you in your trail, so in the area behind you. So if other people actually are then walking towards this droplet cloud, they can actually also walk through the droplet cloud. Now, before COVID, I would always attempt to distance myself from runners because of all the panting and sweating and spitting that goes on. But does this mean we should be even more aware of them and the cyclists? Well, it's fascinating because the aerodynamic studies have really revealed what we don't normally see, which is that when somebody is moving, as in not standing still, they create this kind of wake behind them, a pocket of air where the virus can thrive. And as long as we are not in that pocket of air, which is typically behind a cyclist or jogger, then we're fine. So that's what the cyclists use when you see them all at the Olympics. They use that to go faster. So what the the air sort of sucks in behind them, does it? Yeah, like basically, there's a lot of air resistance when you're traveling in a certain direction. And when you're behind someone or something that's already moving, that air resistance doesn't exist or is less strong and has less of an impact. And so if you can get in that slipstream, you're doing less work to travel in the same direction. And dolphins use it. 
you know, they usually swim behind boats um, that are traveling at speed. Uh, motorbikes will be in the slipstream of lorries, for example, which means they have to use less power on their, their bikes. And so this is a phenomenon that's been around for a while. And basically, it occurs when anything is moving. So let's talk a little bit more about the science because uh, Bert Blocken, which is an amazing name, by the way, Bert Blocken, how did he create the simulations and then use them? So it's all based on mathematically modeling the way air particles move. And that's based on a bunch of equations that were established a long time ago by a guy called Bernoulli. Those equations can predict how air flows. And so based on the speeds at which objects are moving or wind or even temperature difference, pressure differences, things like that, you can simulate how air flows in a certain space. What's interesting, though, is that we keep hearing about this two meter distance and lots of governments have based their social distancing measures on those two meters. But there is a bit of a range which Professor Blocken describes. Indeed, that is, that's interesting that some governments have, um, have chosen different numbers. Uh, and I think it really boils down to which part of the literature you're focusing on. I've also read articles uh, written by colleagues in Asia that determined that for some powerful coughs and sneezes, the droplets can travel further than two meters. Uh, but then they will not land in, in the, let's say, in the face of the other person anymore. They might land on, on your legs or on your feet. And then I think it's just a matter of interpretation. If you want to be extra safe, you can take two meters. If you want to be more safer than that, you could even make it larger, but then it could become very infeasible. Um, and I think these different distances really come from different studies where some study says, okay, 1.5 is enough, another says 2, another says 2.5. Um, so there's, this no, there's quite a lot of consistency in the literature, but there is still some range of distances that, uh, that you can find there. Okay, so once lockdown starts easing even further, how do you communicate things like slipstreams and particles to people? Because, I mean, at the moment we have one number, most people aren't even following that. But if we add another one for running, won't that just confuse everything even more? Well, I think what's so incredible about Professor Blocken's research is that it's really visual. To be able to see how air particles move using colours and arrows, I think is really impactful. So, the studies that he's doing will hopefully give people a chance to understand what air is doing around these cyclists and joggers. And two meters definitely keeps everyone safe. It's a good number, which, you know, uh, ensures that droplets will fall to the ground before reaching another person uh, within those two meters. But I think the long and the short of the studies is if a person is moving, as in not standing still, then it's probably best to give it a larger distance and to not follow behind them. So, Chini, the, the two metre distance, I mean, how, how do we do that in such a, in big cities, you know, like London, for example, on these tiny pavements? So many people are out running, so many people are out, out cycling. I mean, surely we're in danger all the time. Yeah, and that's such a great question. Um, and one that we do address in our film, because, you know, in urban environments, crowds, I mean, that's the whole point of cities, to bring people closer together. 
and we are densely populated in places like London. And so how do you cope with a city that literally doesn't have the space to allow us to keep those two meters? And, you know, in our film, we talk about the fact that it's about prolonged um, exposure to someone's slipstream or prolonged um, exposure within a two meter distance that creates, that increases the risk. And so if you are happening to cross someone um, on a street corner, that's not necessarily going to put you at risk. But if you are constantly walking behind someone within their two meter distance and you're directly in their slipstream, then you are putting yourself at risk. One of the most important weapons in the fight against COVID-19 is finding a way of tracing where the virus has been in an effort to predict where it will go. The amount of cooperation from technology companies when it comes to this virus has been particularly impressive. It's been a bit mind-blowing, really, hasn't it? I mean, I spoke to a developer at NextStrain. It's an open-source project to harness scientific data on pathogens, so that's the organisms that cause disease. So NextStrain is a platform that we've developed in collaboration with the Fred Hutch Cancer Research Center in Seattle, Washington. And the premise behind NextStrain is that we can take the genetic material out of the virus, and we can use this to tell us more than we might otherwise be able to get from, for example, interviews and just testing numbers alone. So what we do is we take the genetic material and we look for tiny changes in between one sample and another sample. Now, these are mutations, but they don't tend to be what people think when we say mutation. They usually don't change the function of the virus at all. They're more like typos in a document. But you can imagine that if you have something with a couple of typos, you can still read it perfectly fine. So it's the same for the virus. But what we can do with these changes is they show us what viruses are more similar and which ones are more distant. So if we see viruses that share the same mutations, we put them close together. And if we see viruses with different mutations, we put them further apart. And in this way, we actually create what's like a virus family tree that shows us how all of the samples are related to each other. And then, because we know when and where these samples were taken, we can infer what might have happened in the past. And this helps us track the virus as it moves around the world and through time. So what NextStrain are doing is that they're getting these um, DNA sequences and they're loading them all into the, into their um, software. But what it sort of tells them is it it's sort of these slight mutations that they talk about, that they're able to sort of track where the viruses come from. And, and uh, so, for example, you know, if they have a, a sequence from somebody in Australia and that sequence sort of matches up to possibly a sequence they get from Austria, they can say, well, you know, that person came from Australia and then arrived in Austria. And so it's almost like a, you know, a family tree of, of, of sequences. So you're looking for those slight changes. And so what they'll be able to do is that if they can see, you know, where something has come from, say if there's a big outbreak in Australia, for example, then they can say, right, hey, Australia, you've got a big outbreak. And by the way, lots of people have gone to uh, Italy and lots of people have gone to, you know, the UK and to London. So guys, you need to watch out for that. So it's sort of that, that hopefully that pre-warning of what's about to happen. And then they, the, the officials will know what they need to do, what to, what to bring in to sort of try and, and restrict that. And I, again, I guess that comes back down to the old, you know, testing and tracing and, and isolation again. So why is it so important that we know where people got the virus? How does that help us in terms of fighting COVID-19? 
Well, Emma Hodcroft, who is uh, a very eloquent speaker, I'm pleased to say, what she was telling me was that it'll help officials decide what measures to bring in, whether it's a lockdown, isolation of a group, or possibly a township, uh, maybe a restriction of travel in and out of a country, or just simply enforcing social distancing measures. Um, I loved all the talk about typos. I really understood that. But does the virus have its own set of genes, or is it the people's genes that she's interested in? No, well, the virus has its own genetic sequence, genetic code. And so they can see those those slight changes. I mean, yes, we've we've got our own genetic um, codes as well, but the virus has its own. And it's through that that they're they're able to trace it and and trace the changes and and where it's gone and, and what's happening to it and who it's being passed on to. So those typos that she talks about, what do they refer to? Yeah, well, I guess it's it, so where where the where the virus is, um, it will have a, a a different set of typos, I guess you could say. So it, the the genetic sequence will look different from somebody in Australia than possibly it will look to somebody in Iran or or the gen- genetic sequence found in the virus in the UK, and it's these little changes, these little typos and mutations, that's how they can figure out where it's come from. So how did the actual idea for this company come about then? Ashini, that's an amazing question uh, because I asked Emma just that. This was originally started as Next Flu, and the idea was to track flu as it moves around the world from season to season so that we can better see how it changes and what strains might be coming around this year. This is still a big part of what we do at Next Strain. Now, as it grew as an idea and as sequencing became more available for other pathogens, obviously the name had to change to something a bit less flu-specific, so we changed to Next Strain. And since then, we've been able to use the same techniques and improve them for things like Zika, Ebola, measles, mumps, and enteroviruses. So it was actually really um, natural for us to pivot to the new coronavirus when reports started coming in in January and the first sequences became available. So Emma, how do they get access to the genetic samples that they need to trace the virus? Well, it pretty much comes down to the kindness of strangers, or in this case, researchers worldwide, because the genetic sequences that NextStrain uses are pulled from an online repository. Uh, That's where labs post their genomic data. Now, that does mean that many samples are coming from the West, and they do want to have a sort of closer relationships with all countries, because obviously you want that diversity. And they also want to make it really accessible for all, so that would help them build better maps of COVID-19 movements. And it would also help the poorer countries who maybe don't have the cash to spend on, on you know, this, this kind of thing. How are they getting funded? I mean, are they making a profit from doing this? Shinny, science and profit, do those things ever go together? I mean, maybe... No, maybe, no. <laughs> don't. maybe love. Exactly. Well, there's a lot of love going on, I'm pleased to say. But I mean, maybe profit for Big Pharma. But, you know, as usual, it's all about the funding. So the co-developers that now these guys are scientists from the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Centre and also the University of of Basel, that they've got funding from those two institutions help them develop the software. And now they're raising sort of around $300,000 to bridge the gaps and try and expand the community of the researchers sequencing COVID-19 all over the world. Now, as I said before, they want this accessible so that people can set up their own sequencing pipelines, which is pretty incredible. And and I think even more incredible, all of this, the projects are open sourced and their code is free 
to download. So, you know, they want people to be able to access this and, and you know, figure out what's going on in their own countries. Now, one of their long-term goals is to sort of provide this interactive data visualizations for virologists and epidemiologists, all the ologists and the public health officials, and also, you know, people like us. I mean, we can go onto their website and have a look for ourselves. Mm. What's incredible is that they're having to crunch through so much data but what's their kind of take on COVID-19? Do they think it's going to mutate and become something else? Is it here to stay? Well, I mean, you talk about the data and crunching through. So because they've got a few people around the world you know, looking at this stuff, it's pretty much like when one person signs off in one country and another time zone, another one signs on. So they're, you know, yeah. they're working all the time. But yeah, I guess... I mean, in, in one of Emma's uh, clips, you heard her mention mutations. Now, um, that's sort of slight mutations they're talking about that don't usually change the function of the virus. So it's more like that that typo. But, you know, there are different strains of COVID-19 and the virus will evolve. But scientists still aren't really sure why some people become critical and others can be infected. But not have any symptoms. And that's why it's unlikely that it will just disappear because there are so many asymptomatic people who continuously spread it around and don't know that they're even doing it. Now, SARS disappeared because it was easier to detect who had it. Um, and I guess that sort of, you know, comes back to, you know, the importance of what you were talking about, the two-meter distancing and slipstreams and that sort of thing. I mean, I think these things are pretty much here to stay. You know, Emma Emma sees a very different world, you know, thanks to this pandemic. I'm not talking about myself in the third person, by the way, talking about Emma Hodcroft. So, you know, no more handshaking and, and a lot more working from home. This will become the, the norm for us. I mean, yeah, there's going to be a lot of changes that have to be implemented, you know, for the foreseeable future. So that's it for another edition of Razor. Remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to see the videos from some of these stories, go to CGTN Europe and type in Razor. Until next time. Bye.